you're you're coming down and you know where his helmet is he's asking for it and i've looked everywhere i don't know something at school he won't say he won't come out of his room and now he says he doesn't even want to go trick-or-treating i know okay thank you just get here Get ready. It's almost time for the Halloween parade. You're supposed to knock. Go away! Mom says you won't say what happened. Did someone say something? Someone always says something! Well, tell me what happened. It's none of your business! You took my day with Mom, so it is my business. I heard Jack Wolf talking about me behind my back. He said he'd kill himself if he looked like me. Jack will? Isn't he the nice one? There are no nice ones. I wish I'd never gone to school in the first place. But you were liking school. I know you were. I hate it, okay? I hate it. Augie, I'm sorry, but you're not the only one who has bad days. Bad days? Do people avoid touching you? When a person acts the light touches you, do they call it the plague? No. Jack was all I had. Just don't compare your bad days at school to mine, okay? Okay. That was a great movie, Wonder. Highly recommended if you haven't seen it. It's rough stuff there. Um, but things do turn around for Augie and... Uh, in a beautiful way. The boy mentioned in the clip who had given in to some peer pressure to ridicule him finally stands up to the bullies and uh, comes back into a beautifully restored relationship with him. And while that movie Wonder really shows just how devastating being different can be, it also shows the powerful impact of coming alongside those who might be otherwise alienated. And we're going to see that uh, in Jesus today. We're going to see him demonstrate that for us as he stands up to the religious bullies and um, elevates the oppressed. We'll learn how we might follow his lead in relieving and advocating for those otherwise other uh, overlooked. But first, I want to welcome you. If you're new today to Eastgate, we're, we're so happy that you're here. Um, I need to let you know that, uh, unfortunately for you, you've showed up on a day when we've got a substitute teacher. I'm... I'm Julie, and uh, I highly recommend that you, oh, you guys are too good to me. But uh, anyway, please come back uh, when Rob, our, our teaching pastor, is back in the saddle again here. Uh, last week, we closed up with Jesus trying to give us a picture of God's heart through a parable of the fig tree. And if you remember, what happened was that tree had been planted, and for three consecutive years, it, it hadn't produced any fruit. So the owner ordered it cut down. Um, but the one who kept the vineyard, he pleaded for one more year to tend and fertilize it, to give it another chance to produce that fruit. And Rob talked about that being God's heart towards Israel at the time and, and towards us, that in contrast to this heavy-handed deity ready to repay us for our wrongs, uh, God's the one tending the garden of our hearts and hoping to bring out the best in us. Today, as we open up in Luke's gospel again, it'll feel like Jesus is looking for that fruit. He, um, 
He will, for the fourth out of five times in our narrative, be healing someone on the Sabbath. And he repeats the same scenario over and over again. It seems in hopes of a different response from the religious leaders uh, than the usual hostility he gets. It's a recurrent activity that reveals God's compassion for the captives, both physical and spiritual. It's an opportunity for Israel's leaders to loose themselves and all those who are seeking God from the bonds of religion to receive and extend God's relentless love. Sorry about that. So we're going to dig in and see how we might rightly respond to the opportunities that God gives us, um, how we might produce that good fruit that he's looking for in our lives as well. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we'll pick up with Luke chapter 13, uh, verse 10 through 13. It says, One Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who'd been crippled by an evil spirit. She'd been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Dear woman, you're healed of your sickness. Then he touched her and instantly she could stand straight. How she praised God. Rob's got us a visual of that. Um, Anyway... So uh, Jesus, as many times he has, he goes to the local synagogue on a Sabbath day. And that word synagogue um, in Greek literally means a meeting place. It was referred to as a house of instruction where Jews would assemble regularly and, um, you know, invite someone in to share. They were different from the temple. The temple was where they went for their annual ceremonies, um, their feasts, and to offer sacrifices. And synagogue surfaced uh, during the Babylonian captivity when they couldn't, you know, they were separated from the temple. But this particular day, as Jesus was teaching, he notices this woman. And she was crippled, it says, in such a way that indicated a vertebral or spinal cord irregularity that he credits Satan with causing. And, you know, our Western minds sometimes have trouble with the thought of the devil doing these things that also have a medical explanation. But We know that whether directly or indirectly, Satan's work in this world is to steal, kill, and destroy. Things aren't as they were originally intended to be. And Jesus sends that message loud and clear as he undoes this debilitating illness in her life. The woman appears to be alone, so more than likely she wasn't married, which would have also put her in a really vulnerable position in that society. It doesn't say, but it's possible that on top of this physical uh, disability, she also was homeless and destitute and could have been for a long 18 years. Inside the synagogue, there would have been like a raised platform, kind of like this, with all the benches facing the teacher. Men and women were likely separated because, as we know, women were marginalized in that society. Jewish rabbinic laws actually discouraged fathers from uh, allowing their daughters to learn the Torah, the Old Testament. Thank you, Jesus, for changing that. Um, So surely uh, she wouldn't have had the best seat in the house. Um, And either way, wherever she was in the room, the moment Jesus becomes aware of her, he stops his teaching. He puts his message on hold and invites her to himself, to the main area where only the men and the leaders were allowed, And then touching her, another social faux pas, he heals her on a Sabbath day, an absolute religious no-no, right? So in complete opposition 
to their social and religious prohibitions, Jesus elevates this woman, restoring not only her health, but her dignity as a human being. So I think the first thing we glean from our text today is that we share the good news when we see and relieve the marginalized. Jesus saw the one alone and in need, and he prioritized her by inviting himself to be healed. And that word healed in our original text means loosed, released, um, relieved, or set free. I think that language is very uh, intentional. And today, while, you know, we might not see a miracle in the moment, we can partner with him by bringing that similar relief to those around us. We can participate in bringing wholeness, being purposeful, and looking around uh, to see those who might need our assistance. People don't always have an obvious impairment like the woman in the story, but when they do, we can easily lend a hand. You know, we can help them get to their seats here, assist them in getting comfortable, offer to go get them some coffee, uh, or whatever we can do to ease their burden. And I, I know you guys are really good about that. I see us doing that a lot. There's another group, though. Um, oops. Uh, this may be not so obvious, but, you know, equally as inhibited. Um, sorry, I forgot to flip the slide. Thank you very much, sound people. <laughs> um, but anyway, those are uh, folks who are new to our community. Um, you know, it's hard to be a new person anywhere, um, especially when you're by yourself. You know, many times single parents or new folks, um, you know, people who've been divorced or widowed or are alone for any reason, sometimes have a hard time fitting in. So being on the lookout for those who might be by themselves and making them feel welcome uh, can alleviate them feeling like an outsider. We can ease that kind of thing by inviting them to sit next to us, maybe introducing them to somebody else, telling them about our small groups, or even offering to pick them up on the way to one. I'm not saying we overwhelm or pressure people in any way. Don't worry if you're new today. We're not going to come bombarding you and dragging you to our activities. Um, But we just want to make sure that people know that they've been seen and that they feel welcome here. Many of us have been here a long time, and uh, it's really easy to get comfortable with our little group. You know, clicks happen in every social setting. But Jesus demonstrated in the middle of a sermon, in the middle of a synagogue, the high priority God places on inclusion, on healing not only physically, but socially, those who might be excluded, you know, in any way. Convenience and preference aren't kingdom values, so they really don't have any place among us. It takes a lot of courage for someone to walk into a new fellowship. Let's be determined to offer folks the gift of community by not only greeting them but being willing to invite them into our lives and activities like we would a new family member and really that's the same principle Uh, it applies everywhere we go whether it's our workplace or our classroom social settings neighborhoods we can keep our eyes open for those who might be overlooked or marginalized or left out separated in any way from the community and fellowship we all long for inclusion might just be the first thing God uses to bring about wholeness for someone. So we just moved over to Tallahassee, and um, my youngest son, who's not so young anymore, started a new high school. 
And that's always tough, um, but he has the added element of having autism, uh, which if you're familiar, familiar uh, really affects your ability uh, to establish relationships and friendships. In his 17 years, he's probably really only had one friend, and they were military, of course, and moved off. Um, so Seth depends on his electronics in pretty much every setting to entertain himself and soothe himself. To say he's extremely attached to his phone is uh, really an understatement. If I even touch the thing, he, he can be aggressive, you know. Um, but when he started his new school, I was, I was so happy. He adjusted really well. The only complaint he had every day um, was that he couldn't find a friend, you know. He wasn't being bullied, uh, which was a plus. Uh, but as a parent, hearing your so- uh, child say, you know, Mom, they don't like me. They don't want to sit with me. I'm alone, you know. Um, I hate my life and worse. It's more than heartbreaking. And for him, you know, really devastating. But recently, he came to me. He handed me this normally off-limits phone. And he said, Mom, you're going to want to see this. You know, and it was a text from a peer at school wanting to get together with him. Yeah, (laughs) y'all are awesome. He said, Mom, he likes me. He wants to be my friend. And I'll tell you the joy that those words brought to his soul and mine, for that, uh, for that matter, made all the difference in the world. And while friendship didn't heal his disability, eliminating the loneliness in his life has made the difference for him between living, uh, being alive, and really living, you know. So anytime we reach out to the isolated we live out the good news of God's all-inclusive kingdom, right? All right, so let's move on here. Um, we're going to see the leader's response to, to healing this lady on the Sabbath. Oops, I went the wrong way. I'm sorry, you, you got the novice here. Um, that way? Okay, yeah. But the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. There's six days of the week for working, he said to the crowd. Come on those days to be healed, not the Sabbath day. Well, that's a place you just couldn't wait to get back to, right? (laughs) Don't come around here with any problems. Not today. Maybe tomorrow. Come back. We'll see. Anyway, uh, on top of this guy's incredibly insensitive reaction to this woman's healing, he doesn't even have the guts to address Jesus. One commentator said, This was a passive-aggressive approach. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not a psychologist. But, you know, maybe he's heard about Jesus healing on the Sabbath, and he knows if there's a need, um, Jesus is going to meet it. So he doesn't bother talking to him. He instead tries to shame the crowd into not showing up sick. I'm sure that poor lady who was healed was probably sinking back into the shadows at that point. You know, after 18 years of chronic suffering, she's finally set free only to be shamed and scolded by the leader in charge. Ever been to a church like that? I don't know, maybe the circumstances were different, but maybe have you ever left just feeling condemned? I know I have. Uh, In the first church I attended as an adult, um, the pastor would get up there every Sunday and spend a good 20 minutes berating us, uh, you know, saying how if we weren't tithing, we haven't even made the kindergarten, haven't even got to kindergarten in the kingdom of God, you know. And there's a plethora of behaviors we Christians um, feel the need to dole out shame and condemnation over. 
That's what was happening here in our text. And through the Gospels, God's people were being, in essence, bullied, definitely burdened by the ones who were supposed to be showing them the way. Jesus summed it up in Matthew 23, 4. He said, they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease their burdens. The familiar conflict we see here is related to the fourth commandment. God said, keep holy the Sabbath day by refraining from work. It was intended to be a day of rest and refreshing for them. But the religious leaders had twisted that truth around, uh, specifically um, uh, defining work in 39 categories, um, including how many steps you could take in a day. Um, Healing was categorized with practicing medicine, uh, so that was prohibited on Sabbath day. And the problem was these weren't God's words or his intentions. They were their opinions and interpretations. As we mentioned in opening, this is actually the fourth of five Sabbath day healings uh, in Luke's gospel. And Jesus repeats this thing over and over, certainly to relieve the sick, but also to reverse their mistaken image of God as a legalistic law enforcer. Unfortunately, uh, here, the synagogue leader continues the trend using legalism over love. And in doing so, he portrays a distorted image of God's heart. So I think the first thing that we we get from this section is prioritizing protocols or behaviors over people um, misrepresents God's character. Yep, going the wrong way again. Sorry, guys. There it is. (laughs) Okay. Um, and while the synagogue leader is an easy target, um, we have to remember the motive behind all those additional rules and, and laws they put in. To be fair, uh, they were really just trying not to come anywhere close to screwing up again. They'd gone into captivity because of constant disobedience to God's laws, and they wanted to get it right this time. So they set the bar really unrealistically high, you know. They thought a strict... Um, Adherence to a moral code of conduct was what God was after. And they were determined to mandate and enforce their sin management program, no matter who it hurt or neglected. And we want to make sure we don't fall down that same slippery slope, right? Of course, God wants our obedience, but we have to remember why. Why does he want it? He's not like a frustrated parent who addresses defiance by saying, you know, y'all do it because I said so, um, His motive in all of his do's and don'ts is to protect us from the pain of going our own way. I mean, how many choices have we made? Or I can speak for myself. How many choices have I made without regard for him that have landed us in a sea of regret or torment? Now, when we feel the need to judge someone or condemn them because maybe they got divorced or, God forbid, had an abortion, we need to remember that they're already living in their own hell on earth. And we're called to help relieve those burdens, letting them know there's still hope and help available in the heart of our loving God. We'll never lead people to Christ or rightly represent him by condemning them or quoting commands. It's his goodness through us, not criticism or meanness that reveals his heart. In healing on the Sabbath, Jesus revealed God's intentions behind the Sabbath day. Mark 2.27, 
says uh, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people meet the requirements of the Sabbath. God's heart is for people, not against them. No law or interpretation of scripture supersedes his mandate to love. In all of our serving and doing and living in this life, we have to lead with love if we want to rightly represent the heart of our king. The synagogue leader's opinions about scripture elicited a response to Jesus' healing, completely devoid of any compassion for his suffering sister. So we have to ask ourselves, are there opinions that we hold when, when challenged that cause us to respond in a way that's inconsistent with Christ's character? Do we allow our ideas or ideals to inhibit God's love for those who don't live up to our standards or see things differently than we do? Are we judgmental or critical when we could be kind or compassionate? I mean, I think we do a pretty good job here of embracing each other despite our diverse, you know, social and economic backgrounds, our races and marital statuses, our minor doctrinal differences. But what about the the day-to-day stuff? The Song of Solomon 2.15, and I've never found the, pulled a scripture out of there, but this one was, was pretty interesting. It says, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Or more familiarly stated, it's the little foxes that spoil the vine, right? We have a beautiful thing going here at Eastgate, a wonderful expression of the kingdom of God here on earth. Like Solomon said, our vineyards are in full blossom. We are producing the fruit of the kingdom, making a real difference in our community. And we want to preserve that by not sweating the small stuff. We want to be careful in our serving inside or outside of our community that there aren't burdens or expectations we're laying on people that cause division or intolerance or favoritism. Whether it's how we orchestrate our services, our programs, events, how we educate our children, feel about vaccinations, uh, or what our political affiliation is. We're called to rightly represent the heart of our king in all of our interactions. If we disagree over protocols or the way things are done, do we minimize or dismiss people because we feel our way is superior to theirs? We don't want to fall into the trap of perfectionism or pride where what we do or how we do it becomes more important than who we serve or who we serve with. When faced with the opportunity, uh, of a dis- uh, the opportunity of a disagreement or difference of opinion with someone, will Jesus find the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Will we be the one to defer to the other, preferring to make peace instead of prove our point? Well, if not, we can be sure that there'll be another opportunity right around the corner, right? <laughs> Just as Jesus gave the Israel's leaders another chance to rethink their legalistic views on healing on the Sabbath, uh, we'll find ourselves, at least I have, uh, in repetitive situations until we respond with the heart of God. God never gives up on us. See, he, he knows there's more to us than our knee-jerk reaction, and he's alive in us, hoping that, you know, this would be the time we respond revealing his heart to our hurting world. Jesus said in John 13, 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. And that's a big deal. 
It means when we don't act in love or unity, we're being played by the enemy. You know, we're being used as pawns of the other side when we allow ourselves to demean or minimize one another. C.S. Lewis says, for you will certainly carry out God's purpose however you act. But it makes a difference to you whether you serve like Judas or like John. Yikes, right? We can't impose our opinions or convictions on other people, but we can show off God's character by leading with love in all our interactions and service together. So moving along, Jesus speaks up in response to the synagogue leader's um, meanness. He said, but the Lord replied, you hypocrites, each of you works on the Sabbath day. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water? This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan, Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? Yes. So Jesus responds to the leader's harsh rebuke with a, bru- a rebuke of his own. Huh? Uh, you can hear the frustration in his voice as he basically resorts to calling, calling names, you know, calling him what he's embodying there. Jesus, in essence, says, you know, you've got to be kidding me. You treat your livestock better than this lady. When your donkey's thirsty, you untie him to relieve his thirst on the Sabbath. But this woman suffering miserably for 18 years, nah, she'll have to wait till tomorrow. Now, I can imagine Jesus just thinking, how did y'all come up with this stuff? You know, <laughs> clearly you don't understand my father's heart, you know, and, and I think that that's it. That was the problem. They'd become so hyper-focused on you know, following rules, that they've forgotten the compassion of the rule giver. In his response here, uh, Jesus' response, one commentator noted that he links this woman's bondage back to the Sabbath command restated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Let's take a quick look at that. It says, Observe the Sabbath and keep it holy as the Lord your God commands you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or your female slave or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the resident alien in your town so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. And here's the kicker. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. All right. Jesus is trying to jar their memory as to why God commanded the Sabbath rest in the first place. He's trying to remind them of the God who punished their enemies with plagues until they were set free. The God who literally parted the Red Sea so they could escape to safety and then swallowed their enemies up in that same sea. The one who led them through the wilderness by fire and smoke. The father who fed them literally dropping bread from heaven. They've forgotten their own deliverance and the heart of their deliverer. Jesus is saying this Sabbath command that you're quoting to prohibit this woman from her physical freedom is supposed to be reminding you every week of your own release from captivity in Egypt. What better day to heal her uh, than today? You know, 
He's clearly exasperated. And he goes on to further defend this unnamed woman. He insinuates, you may not know her name, but let me tell you who she is. He identifies her with dignity as a daughter of Abraham, a covenant companion. Our equivalent would be saying, um, you know, she's your sister in Christ here. Jesus is leveling the playing field. Um, The culture might have viewed women as less than, but he's saying, I'm here to tell you she's just as important as you. She deserves the same deliverance from her own captivity as Israel. Jesus not only healed the woman, but he stood up for her. He pled her case and advocated for her. He scolded the leader for his willingness to stand by and ignore the need. And so I think what we see here is that we spread the good news when we advocate for the oppressed. And right off the bat, I want to make clear, I'm not promoting any sort of violence or retaliation uh, towards any groups or government agencies. We want to keep in mind that um, God calls us to enemy embracing love and peacemaking, but not passivity, right? There's ways we can stand up uh, for the suffering that bring glory to the kingdom of God, not add to the chaos. One practical measure we can take is to write our government officials uh, on behalf of those who are suffering, petitioning them uh, to, to support laws in their favor and, um, uh, you know, not, not uh, embrace laws that lead to um, uh, oppression. Sorry, guys. Can't talk here. Um, anyway, we can stand up in protests and prayer for the release of captives for justice and mercy for every group not experiencing the favor and freedom that we enjoy. One story I heard along these lines uh, included a group of pastors and ministers who stood up in opposition to some legislation passed by the Australian government uh, a few years back. Refugees were being detained and held indefinitely for processing the quarters they were kept in were essentially concentration camps where people were being forced to live in unspeakable squalor. Women were being raped by the guards. Adults and even children were trying to commit suicide. One report said one of the children was found trying to swallow rocks to end his own suffering. In response to this inhumanity, this diverse group of ministers got together and they marched into the waiting room of the prime minister of Australia's office. And they formed a circle and they began to pray and sing hymns. They petitioned God for each person and the report they'd gotten a hold of, uh, praying for each child, each family member. The police arrived around 9 a.m., and they didn't really want to arrest this group of religious folks, uh, especially since it included several elderly nuns, you know. That just didn't look good in the papers. So the ministers heard the police tell the office staff, you know, We'll be back in a little while. We'll check on you, assuming these folks would just move along after an hour or so. Well, eight hours later, uh, they were still praying and singing hymns, and the office staff was ready to close up, so they called the police back again. And one of the officers who'd been in there earlier asked the group if they were planning to leave anytime soon, and they said, you know, no, no, sir, we're not leaving until we get a response to our prayers and petitioning to stop these atrocities. So the police officer said, well, we're going to have to take you to jail then. Um, And so on the way, uh, one of the young officers just, you know, amazed that they had prayed for nine straight hours said, 
so you really prayed all this time? Like, how'd you do that? You know, and, and really, and more importantly, why, why, why are y'all doing this? And so one of the pastors eagerly answered that why question. And I'm going to quote him here because he's just so beautifully articulated the mission of the kingdom that we're called to. He said, we do this because King Jesus has come into the world and shown us a whole new way of being human. He came to convert us from people who were afraid and greedy and concerned only about ourselves and maybe the few we love into the kinds of people who love justice, who side with the poor, who speak for the voiceless, who dream of a day when all things are made right, when humankind and the planet are renewed under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I just thought, that is so beautiful. That is the glorious news we get to share with people. I'm sure we all know that the government can't solve all of our social problems. We, we've got to be willing to do our part in uh, word and deed in serving and helping with the oppressed. We've got some great examples of that in our community here. Uh, Greg Nelson's ministry, A New Day, focuses on helping folks get back on their feet and uh, employed after being you know, in prison. The youth participate in a backpack ministry that serves those who don't have enough to eat. Uh, we've done food distributions. We do medical missions to Haiti and Africa and uh, many other uh, uh, opportunities in our community to get involved um, supporting the under-resourced. Maybe God's leading you to do something along these lines. Maybe you have a soft spot in your heart for um, a particular need or group. My husband sent me a really interesting article about Robin Williams. It said that every time he shot a movie, he had the producer hire at least 10 homeless people. And I thought that was just so awesome. And maybe maybe we're not producers. Uh, uh, but, you know, maybe there's other practical ways that we can reach out to the less fortunate as well. We don't always have to reinvent the wheel, though. There's plenty of organizations already actively serving the oppressed that we can partner with. Um, but when we involve ourselves in advocating for the oppressed, we reveal God's heart to our broken world. All right, so finally, um, we'll see the result of Jesus' standing up for her. It says, This shamed his enemies, but all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things he did. Now, we don't know if this particular synagogue leader was shaped by that shame. Maybe Jesus' sensible reasoning uh, got him wondering or questioning his own interpretations. Now, it doesn't doesn't tell us one way or the other but it does give us the opportunity to answer for ourselves will we be the ones who'll come alongside the least of these will we stand against alienation and loneliness will we stand up for justice and mercy in this world we're not always promised success or social change but one thing's for sure standing in solidarity with solidarity with the oppressed brings rejoicing we can be sure that those that we stand beside, those we choose to include, befriend, defend, and advocate for will be forever changed. When they experience his radical redeeming love, he'll get the glory in everyone, our text says. All who get a glimpse of his beautiful, boundless love will rejoice. So let's be determined 
put the good news on display this way. Let's be proactive in seeing and relieving those in our midst who are marginalized. Let's put God's character on display by being peacemakers, choosing to elevate others uh, above ourselves. And let's refuse to turn a blind eye involving ourselves in advocating for the oppressed. Sound good? All right. Awesome. Well, let's pray. Thank you, guys. Well, thank you, God, um, for this word of encouragement, God. And uh, we just are so grateful, Lord, for your heart for us. And God, help us to get that picture of who you really are, God. It's when we know your boundless love for us, God, we're able to, to share that, to spread it all around, God. And I pray that you would help us to see those, Lord, who may need to be included or healed or helped. And give us creative ways, Lord, to be, to be an asset, to be a blessing to the people in need that we encounter. Help us be your hands and feet, Lord. We thank you for this and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.